From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Flashpoint on Pacifica Radio. Today on the program, we bring you the Native American perspective on the U.S. elections and self-determination with the legendary Bill Means, co-founder of the American Indian Movement. Also, we rebroadcast our in-depth interview on the ongoing COP27 talks. All this straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. This is Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Up first on the program, we're proud to rebroadcast our interview from Election Day this past Tuesday with Bill Means of AIM, bringing you the Native American perspective on U.S. elections and more. Listen to this. Nice to have you back on Flashpoints, my brother. Welcome. Well, hello. It's always an honor to be on KPFA in the Bay because, uh, you know, as you know, uh, activism, Alcatraz, you know, a lot of these things that energized the American Indian movement in general came out of Alcatraz in 1968. So this, we have good friends at KPFA for now generations. So thank you very much. For generations. And wow, some of the highest parts of my life were spent with you, Bill, whether it was on Alcatraz or when we co-hosted the uh, the Republican convention from the Indian school there. You might remember we got a, a message at a certain point. We had to take the radio station out of the school. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, that but, was something, uh, man. The Republicans had a, remember, uh, like an armed camp there around the St. Paul Civic Center. I don't know. What under, I, I remember staring out the window, Bill, and seeing Amy Goodman's crew getting arrested while <laughs> we were broadcasting. There was something like 12 cops on bikes. The place was a military, yeah. uh, uh, you know, um, uh, occupation zone. Anyway, Bill, I wanted to talk to you. As you know, today the elections are happening. Uh, it's a big day in American democracy. But I wanted to get your perspective now. You know, in terms of we know that the indigenous community in North America is participating more and young people are getting more and more involved. But tell us about say something about uh, the nature of self-determination and how indigenous communities in this country, in this hemisphere, have been treated when it comes to self-determination. Well, first of all, you know, Indian people have contributed to the United States government not only in their land, but uh, in the form of government of democracy, in which when uh, pilgrims and other immigrants uh, came to this land, uh, they already witnessed democracy in action at the Six Nation Iroquois Confederacy. And this is where a lot of the principles in the Constitution of the United States uh, were borrowed and so uh, we have, for many, many years, uh, been active. But you know what happened was with uh, colonialism and the cavalry and smallpox blankets and uh, various other issues through the years, we withdrew and were put on reservations. We withdrew, I mean, not from, uh, should I say, participation in government, because we had our own government. 
And when you talk about self-determination, that's where that begins. I mean, we had democracy in our families, in our reservations, in our communities, long before the Americans got here and established their military outposts. So, uh, you know, uh, it's getting so democracy is based on how much you can condemn in strong words your opposition rather than to work together for the better of the people. The people have been set aside for this uh, vitriol against each other as candidates. And, uh, but even with that, we still participate. And as you said earlier in your introduction, we are participating more and more these days where we many times are the swing vote in some of these states now because we've registered a lot of people. And, and I guess that's going to continue. We've had some wonderful um, uh, local elected officials that have come out of the Dakotas, and uh, there's, a, there's a lot more going on. So that's sort of a wonderful uh, thing to see, Bill. But, of course, uh, on the other hand, uh, we've got this frontline battle uh, that the indigenous communities have been leading against the extractors, uh, destroying, still sucking the life out of the land underneath where indigenous communities live. You want to talk about that battle against extractors, what that has to do with democracy? You know, uh, in a democracy, those who live on the land have some say as to how the land is used. And in actual, in our societies, we didn't own the land, which is a very, very philosophical distinction. Because the land belonged to the people, and the people shared in the riches of the land. Although we hadn't established uh, gold as a means of trade, uh, we had a system of barter that, uh, and other systems of monetary value uh, that we used quite well. And so I guess what I'm saying is that through the years, you know, the uh, the immigrants began to look on the land as, for example, if they saw a mountain, they would say, there must be a lot of gold in that mountain. Or maybe there's copper. Or maybe there's uranium. Where an Indian looks at the land and says, you know, that's a good place to go to get in touch with the great mystery. To have a conversation with the people that have gone on before us through prayer. And so these are, we had a different uh, spiritual background. And so the land was our mother. It wasn't to be used as a commodity. It wasn't to be used to make a class that stood above everybody else not only in wealth, but also in accumulation of material things. And so these are philosophical differences we had right away, which led to almost annihilation, where Indian people were down to numbers 250,000 by the end of the 19th century. 
And so these are the numbers where we don't have a talk about self-determination. We don't even have a, a standing as a human being. And so we had to work very hard and resist this annihilation through our warrior societies, through our military. And we stood our ground, even though in places like Mankato, Minnesota, our people had to go through and earn the vote by being hanged. The greatest mass hanging in the history of this hemisphere happened in Mankato, Minnesota in uh, 1862. So these atrocities are put behind us. Now they're talking about not bringing the truth out in these schools and the educational system of the United States where we were basically edited out of existence. You can't hear about the history of Indians. Nobody studies our language, but we have to study their language. It's imposed on every person that comes, no matter where country they're from. So these are the issues we had to deal with. Even though we survived those, we had a government imposed on us by the colonial system of the United States that was called tribal government. And that's what we live under yet today, in which uh, our authority is based on how much we give up to the United States in terms of our resources, in terms of our uh Land, land space, our land area, that's the reality of the situation through the years, throughout history. So uh, many Indians, for example, in Oklahoma, there's about 38 tribes that were all moved there from somewhere else, except maybe a few out of 38 or 36. I can't remember the exact number, but. Nevertheless, it shows you, see, that became Indian territory. So as they moved their machines and their their oil rigs to the east and to the west and to the north and to the south, they had to displace the original inhabitants, the indigenous peoples. And so they began to create methods and means by which they could colonize us and put us in various reservations. And this is the same tactics they use in Vietnam. I witnessed this as a soldier over there. So they can't tell me I haven't experienced colonialism or genocide or ethnocide. These are things that America and the modern day militaries of the world use to, should we say, uh, keep the people from organizing themselves, from having and fighting for self-determination. Because at one time, during the Indian Wars, that's all we could do is risk annihilation by creating our own warrior societies and own military. And so in our country here, Lakota country in the upper Midwest, we have a fantastic record against the military of our Lakota nation against the military of the United States. So much that it was they who sued for peace because we were costing the United States government back in the 1800s a billion dollars an Indian to kill one of us 
because we resisted colonization and racism and these various tactics they use. So now that we're in this so-called democracy, we still have to fight for our rights to be recognized as a American citizen. We didn't even become citizens of the United States till 1924. So this is a type of election system we lived under. And eventually they brought that system to the tribal governments because we signed treaties, we were assigned various lands. And remember, treaties are not small, uh, should we say, history. They're not related to historical documents in the sense that they're no use today. They're as legal today as the day they were signed. They're part of the Constitution in Article 6 of the United States Constitution. It says treaty law shall be the supreme law of the land. So these are what we're basing our rights on today. We have to fight for the right to vote. We have to fight for the right to be a citizen. And these things are still going on. So through the years, a lot of our people no longer wanted to participate. They said, well, we're just going to forget about the United States government, and we're going to try and make a life for our children on a little reservation, see what life we can make for our children. That's what Sidney Wolf said when they took him to the reservation. So uh, through the years, we've built up an experience in uh, organizing. As you know, being surviving on the plains, we became some great organizers of military and social issues. So it took us a long time. First we had to survive, and now that we survived, we continue to fight for same thing in terms of voting that non-Indians in the sense of minorities, the blacks of the South, you know, the Chicanos and Spanish-speaking people, of the Southwest, uh, these are the people that are still organizing themselves today and becoming part of the system and trying to use our political power we have left to survive and to uh, keep the enemy at bay as far as possible and to make them believe that we too can live in this world side by side if given a chance. That's the voice of Bill Means. He's a co-founder of the American Indian Movement, uh, and we are delighted to have him on. Uh, this is Election Day, and we're talking about self-determination uh, in the context of uh, indigenous communities, Native Americans in this country. Now, Bill, this is now called, I, I really wanted to ask you about this and hear your linguistics on it. This is now called Native American Heritage Month. It's uh, been renamed Native American Heritage Month. What What do you think about Native American Heritage Month? And we we do also have. We should say that we have uh, in Deborah Holland. There's a uh, now the Secretary of the Interior is uh, an Indigenous person. So you've got uh, Native uh, American Heritage Month, and there is. Uh, a member of the cabinet who is indigenous. What are your thoughts about where we are now and those sort of changes, if you will? 
Well, I think, first of all, it's uh, it's an amazing that a young Indian girl can rise through the, uh, the glass ceiling, through the racism, through the educational barriers to become Secretary of Interior. And we are very proud of Ms. Holland. Let me tell you, it's been a long struggle. You know, using the education of the system to rise within that system. When a lot of our people are still not even considered as members of this modern day society, we're still on a reservation. We're still asking for the United States to live up to their, <coughs> their treaty obligations by providing the housing that they owe us, by giving us a cut of those minerals. I know we don't want development. We don't want the oil companies to destroy Mother Earth, but yet still we need some of those uh, treaty obligations to be met by the United States government. We just didn't give them the land or give it away. There's certain things they owe to all American indigenous people, whether that's in Canada or throughout the Americas especially, where we were colonized long after other groups in Africa, Asia, and around the world. And so what happened was here we are stuck in this uh, America. We're having to go through the system. If they would live up to their treaty obligations, we would be some of the richest people in terms of our culture, in terms of our educational systems we built ourselves. Uh, we have tribal colleges. We got our own schools on the reservation. So these are things we just didn't lay back and wait for the white man to take care of us. We had to go out and survive. And so we're still doing that today. And everybody looks on us as a part of the welfare system. When it's America who's on the welfare system, they're the ones that started by taking our possessions, by taking our land, our resources. And so the, the idea is completely turned around to where it looked on as poor Indians living on a reservation when we have three-fourths of all the minerals and and the... What do what do they uh, say the the people that dig in the ground the miners you know the all the extractive, extractive industries they yeah. call it at the United Nations where we have gone now outside of the United States government to bring our message to the United Nations but this uh, colonial society we live under limited in our opportunities. I mean, people like Dev Holland uh, have been coming out of the system, but they could only go so far because they were in there. And uh, sometimes they, they didn't recognize them as Indian people at all. We were recognized as the United Nations and other places where they talk about human rights were recognized as ethnic minorities. Or were given other labels, such as populations. We weren't humans until 
International in the Treaty Council and other indigenous people went to the United Nations and demanded that we be considered in the human rights issues of the United States, but also throughout the world. So uh, we're still fighting for rights every day, and the recognition of Indian Month uh, you know, has been a long struggle as well. We used to have Indian Month start, uh, started in Minnesota when I lived over there. And we had a governor even here in South Dakota that changed Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. And this was many years ago through the work of various advocacy organizations. So nobody gave us this, whether it's Mexican Day, or Day for the American Indian, or Day for Alcatraz. We've had to fight all the way through. Just like, you know, the California people, Spanish-speaking mostly, but still indigenous. They had a walk this summer, I remember, that went all the way from the San Joaquin Valley up to the California to the state capital at Sacramento trying to get their voting rights. So we're still struggling every day as indigenous people just to get our right to vote. People think that, oh, you just go down and check off your name and that's it. No, no, we still got to have an ID, have the right address, got to match up. There's so many barriers to voting these days, even on a reservation. Uh, and even more so in places like North Dakota, we had a big campaign last year uh, to recognize tribal identification or to allow other use of <clears throat> identification in terms of getting our right to vote. And we became, in some places, a swing vote to put some of our own people. Like here in South Dakota, we got two senators and uh, two House of Representatives that are indigenous peoples in the state house. So we've gone from none to four representatives, and it could be as high as six this year. And so we have a voice even inside state government, which uh, used to be totally separate. So we had to get involved in those type of things, even though we're supposed to be having our relationship with the United States government through treaties. So it's kind of, uh, some might call it uh, complicated. However, most of that is caused because, like I said earlier, they tried to edit us out of existence. So you never got to learn in the white community about tribal government, about our Indian languages, about our customs and how we voted, how we lived, how we ran our government. What's the name of our government? Now that's coming out. We're Ocheti Shakoin. That means the seven fires of the great Sioux Nation. So these are things that are coming to bear now. They're starting to teach these things every day in our schools as well as in colleges and universities where some of our well-educated people are now working. So we're at it, man. We're trying to get through to these people that we have the right to vote. We have the right to be here, and we're willing to share, but we want you to turn that around as non-Indian people and say, hey, 
Look around. We are on Indian land if we're living in the United States. Right. And so while they're looking the around, Bill, and while they're looking around, they need to take a look at what's happening, wouldn't you say, with Leonard Peltier in the context of Wounded Knee, which you participated in and which led to the founding of the American Indian Movement. But they are still torturing Leonard Peltier for standing for all the things we've been talking about, right? Wouldn't this be a place to start? I mean, honestly. Yeah, he's a you know, well-recognized political prisoner by... All of various international organizations, Amnesty International, the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, other various uh, bodies that concern political prisoners. And so, uh, you know, we, we're, matter of fact, there's a march going right now. They should be entering D.C. within the next few weeks uh, to bring attention to Leonard's uh should we say his fight for freedom because you know he's well almost 45 years I think now and so uh, he's one of the oldest lifers and long serving lifers in the whole United States penitentiary system and look at that here's a man who fought for his land his people his family defended our land just as others, such as City Bull, Crazy Horse, Rain in the Face, all these great military chiefs did that as well, and they stood for their people. And so that's the way Leonard Paltier is revered in our communities, but yet he's uh, stereotyped as a murderer of FBI agents when they never proved that. Miscarriage of justice, miscarriage of justice to the ultimate degree. That's Leonard Peltier's case. Anybody that reads it or reads various books about it, they come away with the same opinion. You know, so uh, that's the struggle that even Leonard Peltier has within the walls of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. Yes. You, you know, Bill, um, I'll never forget, I'm sort of circling back uh, to that moment when we were working together uh, covering the uh, Republican convention. That was, by the way, McCain and Palin. And I remember as a part of, I guess it was part of my education of going from Dennis Bernstein to Bernstick, was you pointing out and taking us to the fa to the place that that there were they were having that Republican convention within a very close proximity of where the actual slaughters of indigenous people took place, and I don't remember the Republicans acknowledging that they were on uh, bloody land where uh, U.S. troops slaughtered Indians. Yeah, that's true. It's called Mons Park up above. It's a burial mound that were ripped apart, but only 80 miles to the south of St. Paul, Minnesota, is where the 38 Indians were hanged on uh, the year of 1862 on December 26th, the day after Christmas. And so this is... Uh, very historical place that they came to, but 
none of that was acknowledged and or known by even people that came there. They didn't bother to talk to the local indigenous people or even invite them into the conference. So that's how shut off we are from the system, but we made them recognize us because they could hear that drum outside. As you remember, we had several marches, but you could only get maybe, there was so much paranoia by the Republicans, you couldn't get within six blocks of the Civic Center. You had all these high, high fences. And, uh, but they forgot about them when they, when the uh, right wing went to, on January 6th of last year, when they went to the, to the Capitol, they forgot those high fences. And look what happened. Man, they could have, uh, they could have done, you know, the same thing. If that was, uh, minorities and Indians that tried to do that at the Republican convention, we'd all be probably in prison or just getting out on parole now or something. But uh, they're still trying to decide what to do to, with the uh, marauders of of January 6th. So it's a double standard of justice throughout the United States uh, system. And uh, we fight every day to try to show them examples. Show them, that means show the United States government. And... Uh, I remember Fool's Grove saying that wounded knee. Our enemy is not the police or the federal marshals or the various law enforcement agencies. Our enemy is the United States government because that's who our treaties were signed with. That's where the violations are taking place. And so some of these things seem very simple to us as indigenous people, but when it comes to creating an understanding with the voting public or the people that are running for office, many of them, they don't mention our name. They don't even know who we are. They probably think we're all Mexicans if we're a little bit dark. Or they think we're mixed bloods of African-Americans. So anyway, that's how we get stereotyped. We're not, we can't even have our own identity, man, because they don't know us. They don't see us. They see us as a stereotypical minority, and that's it. Uh, we could certainly follow, <laughs> if we want a real model for democracy, uh, the indigenous community set that up in so many different ways. We need to open our eyes. Um, Bill means that we're out of time now, but I, I can't tell you how grateful I am. And I know I can hear my audience leaning in to listen carefully uh, to the things that you've shared with us, because uh, uh, the information, the perspective is crucial for us uh, to try and do something different uh, before it's too late and we end up, you know, nuking each other out of existence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Bill, um, and again, thank you for, uh, I will never, I, I am so proud of my, um, sort of my indigenous name, Burn Stick, holding up the light <laughs> as best as I can, standing together, locking arms with you on Alcatraz and wherever we are together. So um, I know Miguel is listening and uh, Miguel Gabriel Molina sends his love and thanks. And we all appreciate the incredible work and information you share with us, Bill. Well, thank you very much, and uh, love goes out to the Bay Area. That's always been a center of resistance, a center of organizing, a center of good people. Beautiful. Thank you. Be safe, Bill. Talk to you soon. All right. This is Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Up next on the program, we're proud to rebroadcast our in-depth interview on the ongoing COP27 talks. Listen to this. We turn our attention to what are supposed to be global discussions on how we're going to save the future of the world by taking actions. Uh, uh, but there, and it's called COP. These are the COP 27 uh, meetings. Uh, and well, let's learn a little bit about them. We're going to spend a good chunk of time talking about what's happening at these uh, talks uh, in Europe and why they're crucial and how maybe the corporations aren't really serious about dealing with the the tragedies they continue uh, to uh, cause us via their emissions and their doing dirty business. Uh, joining us first up to talk about it is Basav Sen. Uh, he is the director of uh, climate policy project at the Institute for Policy Studies, knows a lot about this. Uh, welcome, sir, to Flashpoints. Good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Well, uh, can you give us a breakdown? What exactly is COP7? Who gets invited? Who participates? Uh, lay that out for us. Yes. So, uh, COP stands for Conference of Parties. And it's the annual meeting of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC for short, uh, which is the United Nations body that brings countries together to discuss collaborative global solutions to climate change. And officially, it's representatives from governments of the UNFCCC. But in addition to that, there are people from civil society organizations, you know, uh, grassroots people's movements and NGOs from different countries who also participate in the process. And this is the disturbing part, but there are a lot of corporate representatives there, including from some of the world's biggest polluters, such as uh, fossil fuel companies. And in fact, the number of fossil fuel lobbyists at this year's COP, COP27, is more than 600. They outnumber the delegates from many um, lower-income, poorer countries. And 
could you talk a little bit about you? You have some real concern about the the role that these corporations are playing and how they essentially own the negotiations. Uh, and uh, they there are programs uh, that are essentially, uh, you know, they call it greenwashing, whatever. Uh, but the corporations uh, continue to stonewall, if you will, uh, by these sort of phony. Uh, half-baked programs, right? Very deceptive. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, To elaborate on that a little bit, uh, obviously these uh, fossil fuel lobbies don't go to these meetings for nothing or just for a vacation. They go there to influence the negotiations and to influence the outcomes in a way that's beneficial to their interests. And so concretely, what that could mean is um, uh, they want to steer the discussion away from binding regulation of fossil fuels. They want to steer the discussion away from uh, an agreed upon international phase out of fossil fuels, which is what's needed. And instead, they want to uh, be able to continue um, business as usual under a smoke screen of greenwashing uh, through mechanisms such as uh, carbon markets and carbon offsets and how increasingly even um, a newfangled technologies such as uh, uh, carbon removal and, um, you know, Uh, carbon capture and storage, which have uh, really no empirical basis. I mean, they do exist, but uh, only in an experimental stage. And uh, they haven't demonstrated their ability to um, uh, function within any kind of, you know, reasonable cost limits. Uh, they are just empirically demonstrated failures and extremely expensive. And uh, those are the kinds of solutions that uh, lobbyists for polluters push. And unfortunately, too many of the world's governments, especially governments from the um, uh, wealthier countries, the bigger historical polluters, such as the United States, are only too willing to fall for this kind of uh, greenwashing. How are environmental policies uh, being um, fostered by the Biden administration? Are they much better? Is there a much more clear consciousness about the dangers of global warming? Or is it sort of essentially the same old, same old with a bit of a liberal spin when the Democrats come in. How would you evaluate the actions uh, taken by both parties, uh, and is it nearly enough? Well, it's hard to address that without uh, addressing what I believe is the elephant in the room here, which is the utter uh, brokenness of the U.S political system. The fact that we have uh, two major political parties, one of which actually denies scientific reality. They they claim not to believe in uh, one of the greatest existential threats facing humanity. 
And then you have another political party which says that they believe the science, they pay lip service to the need to address climate change with urgency. But then when you look at the actual policies they put into place, uh, it's almost like they are out of touch with reality. Uh, they have this kind of magical thinking that they can uh, throw a little bit of incentives at renewable energy and that will magically cause fossil fuels to go away. And of course they won't. Uh, while at the same time, they uh, systematically subsidize and um, provide policy support to uh, fossil fuel companies. For instance... Uh, the Biden administration, far from uh, slowing down the leasing of public lands and waters for fossil fuels, has actually accelerated the process. Really? Uh, in spite of their, yes, in spite of their lip service to climate change. And uh, similarly, uh, huge uh, climate bill that Congress passed and that... Uh, Biden signed into law, uh, you keep hearing from the administration that it's the largest climate bill the U.S. has ever passed. Well, technically that's true, uh, but uh, even a very small number is infinitely greater than zero. In other words, uh, the U.S. has never, ever up until now passed any meaningful climate policy at the federal level. So, of course, compared to that very low bar, the Inflation Reduction Act is a step in the right direction. But, uh, you know, given the realities of 2022, it's very, very far from the scale of uh, investment and intervention that we need. Um, uh, so, for instance, it does provide incentives for renewable energy, but at the same time, it holds expansion of wind and solar energy on public lands and waters hostage to further fossil fuel expansion by law. Uh, it ties the administration's hands. It doesn't let them, uh, you know, lease public lands and waters for renewables unless they've met a minimum threshold for uh, fossil fuel leases. Uh, so um, uh, it's another case of, you know, a small step forward and then a small step back. So uh, it's, you know, and a big step back, actually, honestly, with the mandated fossil fuel expansion. So um, much of the climate rhetoric of the um, Biden administration is just that. It's rhetoric. How dangerous? We, you know, this radio show uh, took itself to uh, Standing Rock to cover that entire story. And we've been doing a lot of reporting on the really the battle that the indigenous communities have against the extractors. Uh, and um, obviously, oil has a lot of power. We've seen a lot of expansion. Um, how 
is there anybody who who will really stand? We, for instance, we have a new uh, interior secretary who is uh, indigenous, who's Native American, who cares a lot about these things. Is there any chance that any anybody, any group of people, any administration will take a stand to hold the uh, the extractors accountable and restrain them? Um. The only way I see of actually doing that is massive pressure from grassroots social movements, uh, from large numbers of organized people uh, compelling the powers that be to do something that they are otherwise unwilling to do. In other words, I don't really trust the good intentions of um, anyone with power in our um, current political and economic system. And that's uh, partly just an inevitable consequence of the degree of power that corporations have and the degree to which they have captured our uh, entire system of government and both our major political parties. And, you know, uh, what I'm saying about the United States is unfortunately also true in many other countries in the world. We often hear, we hear it a lot. I'm, I'm speaking to you from uh, the Bay Area in San Francisco. Uh, this mm-hmm. is California. The governor is Gavin Newsom. We, he, he is sort of now gone crazy for nuclear. We're sort of hearing echoes of this. Uh, nuclear is clean energy. Uh, and the governor has supported massive uh, infusion. How, how would you, uh, do you, do you see nuclear as clean energy? Um, no. Uh, the problem with nuclear is it's too dirty, too dangerous, too slow, uh, and too expensive. So the dirty and dangerous part uh, has to do with Uh, the environmental impacts of the entire life cycle of nuclear energy from uranium mining through waste disposal. At every stage of the nuclear energy life cycle from uranium mining through uh, processing of nuclear fuel, through the reactors, through the waste disposal, Uh, There's a lot of toxic radioactive pollution that's generated, and disproportionately it impacts indigenous people in the southwest, uh, in places like New Mexico, uh, and also, you know, low-income, disproportionately black communities, for example, who may live next to nuclear reactors. Uh, So, um, again it causes major environmental justice impacts. And you'd have to be really reductionist uh, about greenhouse gases to say that uh, nuclear energy is environmentally benign because it doesn't produce greenhouse gases. Well, true enough, it doesn't produce greenhouse gases. But uh, the other serious environmental contamination problems also need to be taken into account. Uh, So that's one. Another thing is it's way too expensive. Uh, You know, nuclear reactors are not being built for a reason. 
nuclear reactor projects that had been started are now stalled in um, Georgia and South Carolina. And again, for a reason, it's because they are notoriously expensive to build and complicated projects. They uh, get into massive cost overruns and delays in construction. And uh, that also brings us to the too slow part. We need to deploy renewable energy very rapidly on large scale to replace fossil fuels. And uh, the amount of investment and the amount of time it would take to replace um, fossil fuels with nuclear energy is time that we don't have. And it's resources that would be better spent on solar energy and wind energy instead. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Basel Fassan. He is uh, the director of the Climate Policy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. And uh, we're talking about uh, the, the COP27, these environmental meetings that are taking place, unfolding, uh, and uh, crucial stuff going on there. Corporations are still not willing to to pay the price for the damage that they cost and the money that they extract um, from populations based on at various different levels of um, interaction that are very hard to follow. Um, I just staying for a moment with the nuke versus solar. Um, isn't it sort of a troubling fact that the the nuclear weapons program, which the United States is on, in the cutting edge, they're sort of the leading uh, creator of generations of nuclear weapons, isn't it problematic mm-hmm. uh, that you need these reactors because they're the first part of the chain of building the bomb? There's no such thing as a peaceful atom here in this context, right? Um, That's very true. It's very true that the entire um, nuclear energy industry grew up as an adjunct of the military-industrial complex. Uh, And, you know, there there has been a lot of uh, crossover between the early uh, growth of the nuclear energy industry and the growth of nuclear weapons. And, you know, um, now, as of today, I don't know how much of that actual material connection exists. Uh, But, yes, the nuclear energy industry owes its very existence to uh, militarism and to the arms race. You you mentioned the nuclear fuel cycle. Uh, and alluded to how dangerous it could be. I, I, I'm somebody who I was crazy enough to track the entire flow from East Coast to West Coast, where they store the stuff, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and one of the things uh, that I ended up investigating was uh, a uranium. There was a uranium uranium processing plant in Gore, Oklahoma. This is the uh, this is Kermagee. Everybody remembers Silkwood. This is another plant that had a meltdown that sent hu- sent hus- hundreds of workers running out of the plant because there's no safety. And I I ended up interviewing an NRC person and asked them what do you think happened, and he said to me and very interestingly he says well there are there are two ways to essentially process the fuel. 
There's the fast way. I'm just summing it up. And the very, very, he said very four times. And the very, 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 very slow process. And which process were they using at Kermagee? Of course, the very, 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 very fast uh, process, thus meltdown. If people are interested, I wrote a, a, an article called Lethal Dose. It was a cover story for the progressive. But th this is Kermagee. And the, the only reason we knew is because there was a, 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 an activist who was a hairdresser who took care of the, 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 the women's hair who, you know, the, the women of uh, the, the, the wives of the uh, mostly men who worked in the plant. And she, this Jesse Deerenwater, uh, heard about this Kermagee explosion where dozens of people are running out of the plant, no safety, no nothing, and they're pumping up the speed because they make a lot more money if they can process this stuff faster. That's a problem, isn't it? The corporations are going to cut every corner to squeeze the profit. And when you're dealing with this kind of material, it's deadly. I'm right. sorry, I'm going and on here, but... No, no, no. That's, that's a critical thing to say because that goes to the core of why left to their own devices, profit-making corporations will not do the right thing unless they're forced to by law, you know, unless they're forced to by regulation. So this whole notion that the private sector will somehow uh, regulate itself and save us out of the goodness of their hearts is fiction. Yes, it is. Well, um, let me tell people you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Basov Sen. He is the uh, director of the Climate Policy uh, Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. They're based in Washington, D.C. Uh, and we're talking about the COP27. This is the conference on parties. This is uh, about uh, really the future of the world. And speaking, sir about the future of the world. We're, I mean, you know, I, I've been following the atomic, uh, the bulletin of atomic scientists getting their uh, version of how close we are to a nuclear conflagration. Uh, how, how would you rate uh, the environmental situation? Are we in any way moving uh, in the right direction here or are we hopelessly bogged down in the quicksand of policy and corporate greed? Um, if you look at uh, the actual uh, voluntary pledges made by countries in the UNFCCC um, uh you know, the Paris Agreement process, um, the world remains headed to dangerous levels of warming. And uh, report after scientific report issues more and more dire warnings about the state of the world. So if you, and then, you know, then you see the, the utter inaction by a lot of powerful governments. So if you look at it from that perspective, it does look grim. Uh, but the optimist in me, you know, uh, believes that uh, growing movements of the world's peoples, including a lot of youth, a lot of young people all over the world, uh, are, you know, they are so angry and so organized that 
uh, I do believe we are going to turn it around. I do believe that uh, regardless of the wishes of um, uh, our so-called rulers in this country and in many other countries, uh, we will beat them and we will win. Well, I'm smiling as I'm listening to you because later on in this broadcast, we're going to speak with, we're going to hear Anaya Butler. She is a 16-year-old spoken art, uh, spoken word poet and organizer with Youth versus Apocalypse. And there are so many young people, by the way. They're the, they're the reason <laughs> that the Dems did anything and uh, turn the clock back on the maniacs. Uh, but uh, later on in this broadcast, uh, we're going to be hearing from Anaya Butler, who's out there making beautiful poems in, in defense uh, of the earth. And I do think uh, that the youth are playing a key role in the future uh, of trying to save the world. So again, h- how do you see it? Well, if you were, uh, um, if I could appoint you as an advisor uh, to the president, we've got a Democrat in the White House now, um, what kind of advice can uh, you give a president? W- what could an administrator at the top do to really make a difference? The president of the United States, they say one of the most powerful, the most powerful person in the world. What would you tell him? What does he need to do? One, two, three. Yes. Number one, uh, the president does not need to wait for Congress. Uh, The president happens to have a lot of executive powers to start winding down fossil fuels in particular. For instance, the leasing of public lands and waters for uh, oil and gas drilling is completely under the control of the Department of the Interior because Congress has already delegated them that power. And what a president could do is direct the Interior Interior Department to just stop issuing oil and gas leases. Likewise, the president could direct all relevant agencies, including the EPA, the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, etc., to just stop issuing permits for fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, For example, for uh, pipelines, for petrochemical and plastics facilities, for export terminals, and so on. Uh, And uh, by just freezing the construction of all new infrastructure, uh, the president could, you know, really deal a significant blow to the fossil fuel industry and its expansion plans. And then uh, the, the president also has powers under the National Emergencies Act to declare Uh, a national climate emergency, which would, uh, just through the power of that declaration, uh, divert a lot of needed resources uh, into actions that are, you know, uh, essential to counteracting the climate crisis. For instance, uh, more investment in just renewable energy, uh, more federal investment in public transportation to uh, and rail to transition us away from automobile dependence. You know, all the things that the country needs to do to address the climate crisis. Uh, the president has, you know, powers to do a lot of those things through a, a national emergency declaration.